This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. Doing a couple different things lately than you normally do. Uh, you got your intro in this week, stepping back into the, the arts and entertainment world. How's that been feeling, Miles? That's kind of fun, I guess. I'm, uh, you know, if you, if you tend to like bars, you know, arts and entertainment isn't a bad gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're uh, you're jumping back in and, and figuring out what's going on in Door County, getting your head out of news for a little bit. That sounds like it'd uh, be a good change of pace, huh? It's a little weird. It's a bit of a curse of being able to do a little bit of everything is that every time something shifts, now you can do it. Like I remember back in the like my, my bartending days, there were certain things I would purposely not learn a lot about so that people had to go to somebody else with the damn question. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, in, in the Pulse... That basically is layout. I try to not know anything about it, so I can never have to fill that gap. Right, that's fair. Which is uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, I, I moved over. If you pick up the pulse last week or if you pick it up this week, uh, I arranged everything <laughs> the last two weeks, which has been a lot of fun, getting back over to that kind of visual arts creative stuff that mm -hmm. I used to do with film works and a little bit more graphic design, which I did in college but never did professionally. Mm. So. It's cool to explore that again, get my mind out of writing and back into, you know, doing more visually creative stuff. Yeah. But in that shift, uh, you starting to look at A&E more, arts and entertainment stuff. Uh, you wrote a really cool kind of intro this week about Dave Johnson over at JJ's. Uh, he's a longtime bartender who is now moving on and uh, put together kind of a, a touching perspective on the small town bartender and, and what they mean to the community and what it means when they when they move on to a new place. Yeah, you know, Dave has been at JJ's basically as long as I've been going to JJ's. <laughs> and he, it, which is crazy because that would make you think that he's like some 75 year old man. But he basically started that job looking somewhere between the age of 30 and 35. And he finishes that job looking somewhere between the ages of like 35 and 40. Like somehow, you know, one of those guys who could fit into a lot of different ages. But he's just been, you know, with having run bars, having that one person who is dependable and you're just like, all right, I can just pencil that guy into the schedule every week, four nights a week. It's covered. I fill all the other gaps around that person. So they have value there from that perspective. But then also for the customers, you're just like, I'm going to go there and I know who I'm going to get. And it's not always necessarily about like the biggest, loudest personality. It's just like, I know that in this mood, I'm going to stop by JJ's. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to have a beer. The bartender's not going to annoy the crap out of me. If it's slow, I'm going to have a really good conversation with him. If it's busy, he or she is going to get me my drink really fast. I'm not just going to sit there and get annoyed. And Dave is the epitome of all those things. And for so many years, he's just been that guy that people will be hanging out and be like, yeah, I'm going to go down and see Dave at JJ's. It's just part of their day. Or like I wrote, it's kind of like a, the fabric of the place. And, you know, Dave was as much JJ's as JJ's was Dave. Just so many things. But been there 29 years that's a long time at any gig nowadays and he's changing it up he's going down to the alpine talk to jj and chris the owners there and and dave and amicable amicable thing it's just a change of pace after doing that doing the night shift at a at a restaurant for that long is impossible for me to fathom right. I, I i lasted like five years doing that <laughs> what role is he filling over at alpine uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be. 
I think he maybe running the front of house or if it's running the clubhouse or the or the restaurant portion there. There's so many things in transition down there. They're expanding the clubhouse and the dining room there and putting in rooms above the clubhouse at the Alpine. But then they're also redoing the lodge. So the full lodge won't be done next year, but the restaurant will be redone and partially opened as they kind of make this transition. So Tony Gorm from used to work at Fireside is going to be over there in the kitchen. Dave will be down there. They're assembling a pretty good crew, which, you know, JJ is one of those super busy restaurants up here. So to go from that pace, and I'm sure Alpine's going to be pretty successful with all the changes they're making, but it's still not going to be the same pace as having to work at a place like JJ's every single night. Right. I didn't know that you could actually leave JJ's. I thought you got turned into one of the mannequins. <laughs> yeah, you just, to... you just meld into a bar stool and you're just there. <laughs> I figured that that's what happened to everybody who works there long enough. Uh, it was it was cool, like I said, kind of touching to to see your perspective on it, seeing, like, like you said, that change in the fabric of something. It's going to be a little different now when you go there. And, and the fact that, you know, these people become a part of the identity of the place. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, JJ's isn't going anywhere. They're not closing. JJ's still there. Heck, he's still behind the bar all the time. <laughs> it's crazy. And Chris, and, I mean, they're both working and I, I see no end in sight, you know, unfortunately for them. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's just a different thing. And it, I, I think it's kind of cool that, you know, in a city, you wouldn't write about this. It wouldn't be news or anything. And maybe it's not even news here, but I just thought it was cool to you know, no, like that's it. That's part of your days. That's part of what makes, you know, if you live in Sister Bay, that's, that's kind of part of what that community is, is who works where and who you're going to go see and who owns that restaurant and things like that. And no, it's not hard news. It's not life or death by any means, but it's just part of it. And I thought it was worth noting that small little change. Yeah. Sidebar. I've never worked in a restaurant. I've worked service jobs, but never in a restaurant. And I always pick up on little things between customers and people behind the bar that I always think is, is interesting. One thing that I've picked up and, and maybe you can talk to this a little bit too, but like as a customer, it's great when the person behind the bar asks you if you want the usual, right? Cause yeah. they know what you want, but you should never ask for the usual as a customer, <laughs> right? I, I overheard somebody do that at a restaurant. They sat down they're like, what can I get for you? And he's like, I'll take the usual. And the person behind the bar was like, I don't know what, I don't know what your usual is. Like you shouldn't put that on them to remember <laughs> you if they remember you great, but never assume that they're going to know who you are. Which that kind of thing was one of those things that the, yeah, when I first started bartending and when you're a young buck, the old guys just test you like the happy hour guys are the ones it's, it's not when you're super busy. It's when there's like four guys at the bar and they all come in from working their, their shift, either working on the farm or working a construction site or whatever it may be. And they come in and it's just you and those four or five and they ask you a question. You're like, I can't hide that. I don't know what they're talking about. There's no crowd in here. I'm just an idiot. And they, they would love to do that to you. So they're like, yeah, I'll have the usual, like, you know, it's my first shift. I have no idea who we are. Right. But that's well, part of the, indoctrination that's that's part of your uh the hazing ritual of working behind a bar well i had a similar experience and there's regulations on like what you can and can't talk about so i'll be very vague when i worked at a bank i would have people come in and they would say i want to make a withdrawal and i'd say great let me see your id and they would get upset and they'd be like don't you know who i am i've been banking here for 20 years and i always wanted to be like do you know who i am because if you don't <laughs> know who i am then why would you want me to give your money to anybody. Yeah. That's right? a good point. Why do you assume that I'm going to know you? Cause like the way that they, they get so upset about asking to you know show their ID, but it's like, if I didn't, if I just gave anybody's money to any other old white guy who comes in, cause they all look the same. 
So if I'm just like, oh, of course, Mr. Whoever, I'll, you know, let you right into the account. It's like you would be so upset if somebody withdrawed from your account. And the person behind the thing didn't ask for their ID. Well, absolutely. And a similar thing with bartending is when nowadays, if you go in and the bartender cards you, it's pretty rare for somebody to be like ticked off about you carding them. And especially once I moved to Chicago, it was just, I mean, I'd always just have my ID ready. It was like almost everywhere you got carded. And that was, I was well into my thirties at that point. And now when I started bartending back in 99, if you asked someone for their ID, they were like offended. And so a lot of times you'd be a little scared to ask for an ID or someone was buying cigarettes because we all the bars sold cigarettes at the time and you'd card somebody who wanted to buy cigarettes. You'd get the glare. So you would almost try to work around it and be like, hey, do you know if that guy that guy's 21? Right. And now it's just kind of standard. Like I, I, if anybody makes a, a stink about getting ID now, they're just they're 100 percent a jerk, like just kick them out. <laughs> but uh, back then it was it was a big deal. So it was a, a hard thing to do as a bartender. And same thing would happen. They'd be like carding them was an indication that you didn't know absolutely everybody in that bar. And it, when you're working in a small town bar, that's a it's a bad knock as a bartender. <laughs> right. Another kind of interesting aspect of what you wrote about this week. Glenn Miller Orchestra is coming to Door Community Auditorium and you kind of did a, a little bit of a deep dive on the Glenn Miller Orchestra, which I think is is interesting. And you'll illuminate why it was a fascinating story, because like, I don't necessarily know who the Glenn Miller Orchestra is, but I have like absorbed information about them just being alive. Yeah. Right? Like if you played one of their songs, I'd probably know, oh, that's the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Or I've heard of the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Or you've heard the song, but you don't know who sang it, but you're like, this has just always been in the background somewhere. Right. Or you know the name and maybe you don't know their whole discography, but you do like you, you recognize that there's importance there. And when you were kind of explaining to me what you learned about the history of the band, I was like, there's no way, there's no way that that is what it is. So, so tell me about your, your deep dive into learning about them. Well, yeah, I've talked to Carrie at the auditorium and she's like, do you want to interview someone from the band they're playing this week? I'm like, sure. Yeah. Send me the contact. So I, then I'm like, Oh, you know, I, I just know that name. It's, it's in my head, but I don't know a heck of a lot about the band. So I did a quick, like you do. And you talked to Glenn Miller himself, correct? And I did. And well, oddly enough, we used to have a customer at Husby's named Glenn Miller. He was big Glenn and he always sat right by the tap handles. So yes, I have talked to Glenn Miller, but it's a different Glenn Miller. A different one. He did play music. He was actually a pretty good open mic blues guitars. Anyway, there are seven people listening who know what the heck I'm talking about right now. So I, I look up the Glenn Miller Orchestra. I'm just looking for some basics and stuff. And I assume this guy was around for like 60 years, 70 years. I mean, if his music was around and it, I knew a few of his songs and stuff and they were huge, like from 1938 to 1942, they were the biggest band in the world and it was a big swing band and then mostly instrumentalist type stuff. So then you have 69 top 10 hits. That's more than the Beatles. It's more than Elvis. That's insane. And then they disband after four years. And after those four years, Glenn Miller himself goes into um, entertaining the troops when leading, I think it was the uh, Air Force Band or the Army Band. And so he goes overseas and he actually dies at age 40. His plane crashes into the English Channel as he's trying to fly to Paris to entertain troops. And so all these top 10 hits, all this stuff that has lasted so long happened in a four-year period. And they started like a, a tribute band. You know, nowadays you have tribute bands for, I don't know, everything. You, Pearl Jam, Fleetwood Mac, you, you name it. They, they have a tribute band for it. But this tribute orchestra has been touring since like 1956 and touring the world, playing 200 dates a year, just a tribute to the Glenn Miller Orchestra, recreating their songs 
and they I think they go to Japan every single year. Kind of crazy. Like for that music, that little short span of time to live on almost 80 years later. Right. Four years to make that big of an impact on popular culture is wild. For people listening, again, if you've if you don't know the name Glenn Miller, you've probably heard the songs. If you know the song In the Mood, yeah. that's Glenn Miller. That's the one that everybody thinks of yep. right away. Like Pennsylvania, six five thousand, that kind of stuff. Tuxedo Junction. And yeah, it's stuff that you've probably heard in commercials. You've seen it in movies, almost certainly. If you've watched any sort of a larger catalog of movies, it's still played on the radio. I grew up, my dad would listen to a lot of like public radio and old orchestral music. So I grew up listening to it and I actually do have a couple of Glenn Miller albums on my computer just because once in a while I listen to them. I'm, I don't know, maybe old man soul. Music is for everybody. Miles. It's for everybody. Anybody yeah. can listen to anything. So, well, I talked to, in the process of researching this, so I, I talked to Eric Stabnow, who is the saxophonist and music director for the band. And turns out he's got like a random Door County connection. He, you know, this is a band that travels all over the country, overseas, rotates members in and out um, as people are trying to join it to get a taste of the world and, and get some traveling and work, play with a bunch of other great players. But he went to college in Rochester, New York, and some of his professors taught at Birch Creek Music Performance Center. So he was like, yeah, I, uh, I actually used to teach at that place in, in Door County called Birch Creek. I've only been there in the summer. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like my dad used to be like a maintenance guy at Birch Creek. So I would walk around the grounds chasing my dad around and helping him out and just hear all the kids and the professors and like the, the visiting band members playing and practicing all the time. And he wasn't there when I was there, but he's one of those guys. He did it for five summers teaching at Birch Creek. So I'm curious if you, if you know the distinction here, but you say that it's a, it's a tribute band, right? It's not like the original band got back together and are continuing the legacy of Glenn Miller, or is it like an all new set of people got together, called themselves the Glenn Miller Orchestra and did the songs that were created in that four year period? When it was originally created, it had original members. Today, it does not because they would be very old. Right. But or dead. <laughs> I guess, is it like the Globetrotters? As in, there's no original members of the Globetrotters yes. still playing? Okay, so I'd say that's a good... Yeah, so it's not necessarily like a cover band or a tribute band. It yes. is the same... Yeah, the copyrighted, yes. like, we are the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Yes. Right. Okay, that's a good distinction. That would be like if the Fab Four, the Beatles cover band... <laughs> <laughs> was this if this was called like the fab glenn miller orchestra or <laughs> something, something like that yeah by the way another sidebar if you have disney plus i highly recommend checking out peter jackson's new documentary on the beatles it's amazing have you heard about it uh, yeah I, I have not watched it yet so basically i watched the kenny g documentary which is a totally different story okay yes i i did hear you talking about i'm that getting less day. cool as this podcast goes on. i know keep <laughs> keep it coming we'll try to drag you all the way into the ground <laughs> yes. uh, before the end but basically what it was is the beatles there was a documentary or a film that was made of their final concert it was called get back and that film was created and, and released and blah, blah, blah. But Peter Jackson got a hold of all of the footage, like 60 or 90 hours of raw footage from the creation of that movie and decided to turn it into an eight-hour documentary about the Beatles composing Let It Be and performing on the Rooftop concert. And it's remarkable because you know how most documentaries take all of their footage and try to create a narrative and try to tell a story and they'll pinpoint like oh here's the most dramatic thing and we'll try to like turn that into our climax right this is not like that this is peter jackson got 60 hours of beatles footage and just said i'm gonna share it with the world 
<laughs> there's no narrative. There's no arc. It's just each episode is like an hour and a half to two hours long. You're just watching the Beatles create Beatles music. It's amazing. Uh, so f- Peter Jackson is just really lazy. It's like, I'm not going to edit this. I'm just going <laughs> to put it out you there. You could say that, but I, I think of it more as a gift because like in the first episode, there's this incredible like two or three minute uninterrupted segment of Paul McCartney waiting for John Lennon to show up to start rehearsal. And he just creates get back. Like he (laughs) just starts playing the riff and trying to find the melody and he's scatting and coming up with like improv lyrics. And he slowly, but surely over like three minutes creates the song. It's like the most magical three minutes of television I've ever seen. Actually, I should, I should watch that then because I've always been fascinated by like, how do people create songs? Like it, it just, I write every day of my life and I can't get the idea of like writing a song and, and putting lyrics together and making match with music and make it the right mood. So yeah, that would be pretty cool to watch. Yeah. It's really cool. That's my sidebar for music. Everybody should check that documentary out, especially if you're, if you're even a little bit creative, seeing how like these masters made some of the most influential music ever. Like the fact that Paul McCartney sat down and in three minutes came up with one of the biggest songs of all time. I mean, this has got to be at least, what What do you think, like one of the top 100 bands ever? Beatles? Uh, I don't know. I'd be surprised if people <laughs> listening knew who the Beatles were. Just a, a backtrack there. The reason we were talking about Glenn Miller Orchestra was because they are playing at the Door Community Auditorium yep. Saturday night. And they're playing like a, so they'll be playing the Glenn Miller stuff, but then they're going to mix in some Christmas ACDC? music. So, oh, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a really weird show. But no, it's, a, it, it's their Christmas show. So if you want to check it out, Door Community Auditorium. Saturday night. Miles, what a perfect segue. Talking Christmas music. Now we're going to talk about a Christmas market. Oh, nice work. Yeah, there we go. Don't you love when we point out the segues instead of yeah, letting them Yeah, it makes just, them much more effective and seamless. Yeah, instead of letting them be <laughs> organic. So uh, I don't know if we talked too much about the Chris Kindle market last time, but I had the chance to go down as well, and I thought it was lovely. It's like I've never been to that area. Do you know the name of the little village that it's in? Yeah, Corner of the Past. Okay, I've never actually been there but like seeing it all decorated with lights and and everything i was like what a cool use like turning it into this like blast from the past corner of the past Mm -hmm. like that must be why they named it that (laughs) seeing it like transformed into this little christmas village and seeing everybody just like serving hot chocolate and glog and making food and like vendor selling stuff i thought it was really cool yeah i that's same thing i went there the first weekend when they had a ton of snow cover. So it like looked like a little small town country village, you know, but yeah, John Nelson started the, this idea with the Sissipri historical society. They started down this road like a year ago. It took them a lot of planning, tons of volunteers. And even John told me, he's like, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. And it's turned out really great. I can't remember if, if we did talk about it, but like my brother was in town from Europe and he's a harsh critic. And he was like, this is wonderful. This, they did a great job with this. Yeah, there was live music, there was a fire pit, there were a bunch of different vendors selling cool stuff, and all kind of like tucked away into these little cabins. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't feel like a market, per se, like with people outside doing stuff. It felt like a little village mm-hmm. that you would walk through. It reminded me kind of like the Renaissance Festival, whereas each vendor is in their own little housing unit. But I don't know. I don't. Yeah, think there's was, jousting as well. That's I was going to say, I don't know if a Renaissance Festival would work there. But if anybody from Corners of the Past wants to make a Renaissance Festival there, let me know. Have you ever been to a, like a different Christmas market like that? No, I haven't. So Chicago has one. It's 
a bigger one. They do it in front of, I think it's Daily Plaza, but it's a bunch of little huts. It actually looks like a bunch of mini Al Johnson huts. And I think back in the day, Al Johnson's used to have a hut down there. I, would, I think I was told that, but it's, it's kind of a traditional thing. Like you try to do it at least once every year when you live in Chicago and you go to it. And Baltimore has a very small version of the same thing. But in Europe, they have very massive ones. Like I think my brother told me in Brussels, there's like three throughout the city. And it's one of those things you just do all through like November through December. And I don't know, it's just cool to be outside. And the traditional markets, you don't actually go in most of the huts. It's just they're selling to you like a storefront. This one, they since they're repurposing a lot of those barns and the, the existing cabins that they've moved there over time, like there are cabins that are from the old Liberty Park Lodge. There's the main house on corner of the past was this dilapidated house that had been abandoned for years when David Lee, a former teacher at Gibraltar High School, he went in and said, we should preserve this. This is a cool part of our history. People are just going to let it fall apart and tear it down. But he just started working on it and got a crew together and they refurbished that. And that's how this whole corner started. So now they're bringing some life to it. You know, it's one thing I always like it when people find a way to take history and not just go here, it's on display. You can come look at it, but here, this is the original place, but the life still exists in it. Like you can wander through it or now it's a tavern or now it's a clothing store, like Patricia shop in egg harbors in the old town hall. It's kind of cool to see those places be preserved, but in a different use. And that's the cool thing about, you know, working this Christmas market into it. Yeah, they'll be doing one more weekend, right? So people can go check it out this weekend. Yep, Friday, Saturday. I think it's like 11 to 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then Sunday, 11 to 3. Yeah, I was surprised that it started at 11 because we got there like at 5.30. So we got there after the sun had already set and everything. And it was a cool vibe at night. I think you went there at night too, right? I actually like, I think if I were going to make a recommendation, I'd say go at like 3.30-ish because then it's getting dark and then you know, the, the full effect of the lights and the fires and everything is pretty cool. What they do need, though, is they don't have like a candied nut vendor, at least not that I saw, that you can just smell like the candied walnuts and stuff going through. John, that's like the, the one thing. the roasted peanuts? Yeah. The ones with well, the sign Well, I can't eat the like, peanuts, but everything else, I'm all for You can smell the peanuts. Though. Yes. I, I took my son Oliver there, and we were going to see if we could get pictures with Santa, and he did not freak out and cry like a lot of babies do. We carried him into the room where Santa and Mrs. Claus were. And I said, can you say hi? And he said, hi. And then I put him down and I was like, do you want to go see Santa? And he said, nope. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> so that <laughs> nice, was our experience. Nice kid. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he didn't freak out. He just didn't want to hang out with them. So <laughs> that was that. So two more things I want to talk about. Let's do it in this order. We're going to talk a little bit about golf and Chateau Hutter. And then we're going to talk a little bit about a car driving through the front of the Pizza Hut family value. Uh, <laughs> family video. Family video. And we'll do it in that order so that people who would normally leave during the golf segment will stick around to hear about the car driving through the building. <laughs> Tell me about... Chateau Hutter. Okay, I was going to say tell me about Chateau Hutter, but we're at like 25 minutes and I don't want this to be a two-hour podcast. Yeah, right. So <laughs> You know uh, where I'll go on that. Give me, give me the background. Craig Starrett wrote about forgotten golf courses and we didn't include Chateau Hutter probably for, for length at the time, uh, but now we included Chateau Hutter because it's a cool story uh, and Craig wrote about that as well, correct? Correct, but you are wrong. We didn't include Chateau Hutter because Craig didn't know Chateau Hutter ever had a golf course. I was just trying to be nice and- to Craig. <laughs> And why would you? Because it almost basically never really did, not in a professional sense, really. But yeah, he so he heard from somebody who said, hey, I, I played around at the old Chateau Hutter course. You should look into that. So we talked to that guy who had played around there. And I've heard from a couple other people over the years who, who had played there or at least seen it there. And, you know, it was 
a pretty shoddy golf course that existed for a few years in the 50s and 60s. And it was more or less what I was told and from my research and talking to the Al Beaver who owned it at one time. I think his, Al Beaver's daughter now owns that property. But Al they Beaver... didn't call it Chateau Beaver? <laughs> no. You know why it was no. called Chateau Hutter, by the way? Guys, the guy who founded it was named John Hutter. Oh, and right. uh, you, you might guess he had a bit of an ego. Well, I was going <laughs> to say Chateau Hutter. Like the two don't sound very... Well, it it sounds more like a, a horror movie name, like Chateau Hutter. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, um, sorry. Go ahead. And, any, and the sign looks like a horror movie sign too. In any case, he wanted to build a golf course. He envisioned this as like this the world's great resort and that kind of thing, like like a European style resort. And without going into all the detail, one of those things was to build this golf course. And instead of going out and finding someone to design this incredible golf course, he tried to build much of it himself. Like literally getting on backhoes and pushing dirt around. And, you know, even some of the pictures from his marketing materials, it's not a very glorious course. <laughs> Why is it so hard to make a, a golf course? I've, you get a lawnmower and a drill, right? You make I'm, the holes, you mow the lawn. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how they do it at Horseshoe Bay. That's what I thought, club, right? Yeah. You just got to pick the right location with all the features. And yeah. then the rest is just maintenance and drilling the holes. Yeah, we could have Brian Ferry on the podcast sometime. I'm pretty sure he, that you just described how they do it at Horseshoe Bay. So thanks, Brian. Okay. We, don't, we don't need you. All right, good. It's going to aid me. Anything else on Chateau Hutter, or do you want to leave the mystery for people to discover? No, people should own? check out the article. Craig did a nice job researching that, and uh, you get a little glimpse of it. Uh, I know that people kind of never get tired up here about learning the oddities of that property. So there's one more there. All right, last thing. Let's see if we can cram it in before we hit the 30-minute mark. Car done plowed through the Pizza Hut. <laughs> what happened, Miles? A combination Pizza Hut and family video. Um, I'm at the Pizza Hut. I'm at the family video. I'm at the combination, <laughs> combination Pizza Hut and family, family video. video. <laughs> yes. they, I was going to say, if they were still open, they can use that for free. But yeah, <laughs> what happened? Why'd the car go we through We do jingles. It? Yeah, so Deb Fitzgerald had followed up on this, talked to Dan Brinkman down at the Sturgeon Bay Police Department. Apparently, it was a... New driver, hasn't had a lot of practice, and he, they think he, he was not intoxicated. They don't think there was any sort of foul play or something like that. He hit the accelerator when he thought he was hitting the brake and plowed his way through the building. And luckily, it was an empty family value building. Yeah. I mean, they don't cover this in your driver's exam what to do if you're about to drive through a building. Yeah. So I don't, I don't blame him. So not the pizza hut, but the family value is what he plowed through. Family video. I keep saying family value, family <laughs> video. I'm young. I don't really know what a family video is. <laughs> That's a good point. Actually, did you ever rent? Did you, was Blockbuster still like a thing when you? Yes. Okay. So I never rented from Blockbuster because my sister worked for Video Update, which was a competing video store. Oh. And she would rent me movies and video games every other day. When she would get off her shift. So you were very loyal. You were a stalwart supporter. Yes, it was <laughs> It was wonderful. I'm sad to know that the family video shut down. I didn't realize that that had happened. I, I didn't either, but I haven't gone shopping for videos in 15 years. I, I shopped there a couple of times before we moved because it didn't have great internet. So renting movies was actually not a bad deal. <laughs> but I was going to say they started doing CBD there. And I was like, this is the next big thing. As soon as weed is legalized, you're going to see a bunch of pizza place, video <laughs> shop, dispensary combination. It would have been good. Exactly. And I was going to say, it sucks that, you know, this car kind of puts the final nail in the coffin here. But if it had been a Pizza Hut video rental dispensary, 
this would have happened eventually anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. So, you, were, you were probably correct. Everyone's okay, right? I, Every, okay. Everyone's okay. Before I make um, jokes, I should probably clarify that yeah. everyone's fine. One of the things that we were just talking about in the office, but I thought, like, okay, so I, I get it that you hit the wrong pedal and you go forward and maybe you go through the window or whatever you go through. But like, why would you continue to drive through the entire building? But then I, I think you pointed out like, well, if you thought you were hitting the brake, then you would just press the brake harder. And so what he might've done is press the accelerator harder and floored it through the whole damn building. <laughs> right. Or if you're somebody who uses both feet mm. to do gas and brake, which you should not do for this very reason. Sometimes your brain can get confused what your body's doing and you swear that you're pressing the leg that presses the brake, but you're actually hitting the accelerator. And so your body doesn't think to stop because it thinks it's doing it right. Hmm. That's, a, that's another good point. And that's why you don't drive the wrong way. One other, <laughs> they should just ask, they should say that right when you get like a driver's test, like, Hey, don't drive the wrong way. <laughs> don't be a moron. This gives me one last chance for a random reference that again, maybe like three people will understand. But my first video store experiences were not with a, a chain, not like a family video, not like a blockbuster, but growing up in egg Harbor, there were two video stores in door County. There was door video up in sister Bay, which we didn't go to. That was Sister Bay was way too long a hike and Hillside video, which oddly enough located on Hillside road, which is down by like the egg Harbor fun park. So it's not even in like the center of town and it was in the garage of a friend of mine. So that was just like a garage that they converted to a video store and we didn't own a VCR. So we would go in there and you could rent the whole VCR mechanism in a case and you have to take that home. And then you'd spend like 30 minutes figuring out how to hook up a VCR. And then you could finally watch this video. It's quite an ordeal back in the day. Well, I was going to say when my sister would rent me stuff, she mostly rented me video games because they had both and she could rent the systems for three days at a time. So she would rent me a brand new system, bring it home. I'd set it up plate for three days, then have to box the whole thing back up and send <laughs> it back. And then she could rent it again. So I could have basically unlimited plays of whatever I wanted and it wouldn't cost her anything to rent because she worked there. So she could just get things for free. So that was how I spent a lot of my youth was just playing video games on rotation. I still have all of my old consoles. I don't have any of my old games because I rented them all for like oh, the yeah. first 10 years of my life. <laughs> I, uh, I always, I remember like getting the VCR and when it would come into the house and would have like the digital display on it, I, I felt like we had like a, a piece of a space shuttle in our house. It was just like so cool. We'd just stare at that little piece of equipment. So Clearly, we did not have much other cool stuff in our house. <laughs> That's fair. Is there anything else that we should talk about before we wrap up here, Miles? I think, I think we, we covered all of the big news, the really hard-hitting news this week. Yeah, I agree. Chris Crandall Market, cars flying through buildings. It's a very exciting Pets episode. Heads are falling off. Sorry, dumb and dumb at reference. I was going to say, whose head fell off? Why didn't we talk about it? Well, Miles, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.